Hey, happy 4th of July weekend, Menham Hills Community Church. The story goes that in 1787, as Ben Franklin emerged from Independence Hall, where the Constitutional Convention was taking place, a woman came up to him right after he had signed the document and asked, well, doctor, what have we got? A republic or a monarchy? And his response, it was a bit chilling. He said, a republic, madam, if you can keep it. A republic, madam, a state in which supreme power is held by the people and their elected representatives, not a monarchy with all the power held by a single person. A republic, Franklin said. And why a republic? Well, because as they wrote in the opening to their constitution, they held certain truths to be self-evident. That all men were created equal. They were endowed with their creator with certain unalienable rights, including the right to life and liberty, the pursuit of happiness. And it was with these words that this grand experiment in liberty, freedom, and self-governance was born. A republic, Franklin declared, and then solemnly warned, if you can keep it. This 4th of July, I find myself wondering over his warning. Can we keep it? This 4th of July, America finds itself more deeply divided than ever. According to a Gallup study, the 10 most partisan years in history have occurred over the last 16 years. In the most free and prosperous nation that the world has ever known, 80% of the American people believe that our country is spiraling out of control. 60% of Democrats believe that Republicans are dangerous for the country, and just about the same portion of Republicans believe that of Democrats. Franklin's warning brings some contemporary resonance to the words of Jesus, who warned about 1,800 years earlier that every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. (laughs) As a preacher, I, I take Jesus at his word. And the scary word there that sticks out to me is every, every kingdom, every city, every household divided against itself will not stand. And so this 4th of July with Franklin's warning in my mind, I find myself wondering, will we stand? Because it seems to me the only way to ensure that at this point is to somehow begin to bridge the divide or heal the division And I couldn't help but wonder, does Jesus offer any insight in terms of how we could do that together as a country and as a people? Spoiler alert, I think he does. And so, as I've been wrestling with this all week, here's the conclusion that I've drawn. At the heart of our division, in our country, we have one huge, big, honking problem. And that problem is not Republicans or Democrats. It's not rich versus poor. It's not black versus white. Those are certainly problems, but I think they're more indicative than causative. Honestly, I'm pretty sure about this because I've been thinking about it a lot this week. I would dare say that my conclusion is going to be a bit controversial. I can see the emails coming in now, but I think I can back it up. You want to know what our problem is in America? I can sum it up in one word. Freedom. Freedom. That's the problem. Now, that might seem like a bit of an oxymoron since we equate America with freedom. How could freedom be the problem with America? Freedom is the blessing, not the curse. Freedom's the point of America, not the problem with America. 
I certainly get why you'd think that. I mean, heck, personal individual freedom is at the core of this great American experiment. Yet it was those same freedoms and personal liberties that left unabated and unrestrained that the founders understood could be the single greatest danger to the survival of the Union. Jump back to Benjamin Franklin with me. Upon signing the Constitution, here's what he uttered. He said, I agree to this Constitution, and I believe, further, that this is likely to be well administered for a course of years and can only end in despotism, as other forms have done before it, when the people shall become so corrupted as to need despotic or tyrannical, where a single entity rules with all power, when they need despotic government because they'll be incapable of any other. In fact, in 1787, he concluded, only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. As nations become corrupt and vicious, they have more need of masters. Now, guys, this wasn't just Franklin. This was a common theme and worry for all of the founders. Samuel Adams counseled, while the people are virtuous, they cannot be subdued. But when they lose their virtue, they'll be ready to surrender their liberties to the first external or internal invader. Been to the Jefferson Memorial? On the war wall there, you'll see his warning. Can the liberties of a nation be thought secure when we've removed their only firm basis? A conviction in the minds of the people that these liberties are the gift of God. John Adams. Statesmen may plan and speculate for liberty, but it's religion and morality alone which can establish the principles upon which freedom can securely stand. And finally, once more to Jefferson. He warned, God who gave us life gave us liberty. And can the liberties of a nation be thought secure when we've removed their only firm basis? And what was that? A conviction in the minds of the people that these liberties are the gift of God. Now here's my point. Freedom is not freedom if it's left unbounded. Freedom unrestrained is anarchy. And the founders knew it, and the founders feared it. If I do whatever it is I want to do, and you do whatever it is you want to do, and nobody can tell us what it is that we do, what happens when what I want to do collides with what you want to do? See, the founders understood freedom would need a governor. It would need some guardrails, if you will. And for the founders, those guardrails were virtues. Now, this is not a talk about the faith of our founding fathers. I know there's a lot of debate out there, and you can have at that. But what's clear is that plenty, if not most of them, understood, whether they be deists, agnostics, or Christians, they understood that this American experiment was doomed when and if the people lost a sense of obligation to the moral center, obligation to the Creator, or a shared sense of virtues. Now, when people lose their obligation, when they lose that obligation, then in order to stop anarchy and ensure the protection of individual rights so that we won't, don't wind up with some Darwinian, only the strong survive republic, a series of laws needed to be put into place to safeguard individual liberties. If you won't be obligated by a relationship to your creator or virtue, well, then at least we'll make sure that you're obligated to the law. 
And so laws came into being to ensure that your exercise of freedom doesn't infringe on my exercise of freedom. Here's what's fascinating, so fascinating. Interestingly enough, in the United States of America, a country synonymous with the word freedom. Do you know how many federal laws we have? I mean, we're supposed to be free, right? You would think not a lot. The answer is today, nobody's actually even sure anymore. They've been accumulating for more than 200 years. When federal laws were first codified in 1927, they fit into one single volume. By the 1980s, there were 50 volumes of more than 23,000 pages. And today, online sources say that no one actually even knows. The IRS code alone contains 3.4 million words. The Second Amendment gets a lot of debate now, the right to bear arms. Yet, our lack of obligation to God and virtue has resulted in us needing to be obligated to the law. And guess what? There are now at least 20,000 laws just governing gun rights. America has more laws and more regulations than any country in the world. We also have more policing and regulatory bodies. In fact, America, home of the free, has now dropped the 15th place on the Cato Institute's Human Freedom Index. Guys, where's it all gonna end? Where's it going? I think it's going to exactly where the founders feared it would. And I guess this 4th of July, the question is, is there hope? I mean, is all we have left either to choose anarchy or tyranny? Well, here's the hope I wanna offer you. And believe it or not, I'm not even trying to spiritualize this up. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the good news of Jesus, which if his people would own, understand, and if those of us who say we believe, if we would live it out, freedom still stands a chance. I'm going to show you what I mean. The fear the founding fathers had in regards to freedoms devouring freedoms, it wasn't theirs alone. The Apostle Paul, the great first century Christian missionary, he feared the same thing 1,800 years earlier. And the parallels are so fascinating. Walk with me through this now. You know the Christian story, many of you. Moses is, is writing the opening book of what we now refer to as a Bible called Genesis. He, like the founders in the Constitution, lays out something no other religion had ever dared state that men were created by God and that he created them in his own image. They weren't cosmic dust, they weren't celestial goo, they were created by God in the image of God, and it was this understanding that underpins the Constitution's claim that we have these inalienable rights. And so Moses writes that there's a time, there was once a time, where man lives in peace and harmony with God and with one another and with his creation, but that when man turned from God to himself, when he used his freedom, his free will to choose to be his own God and determine for himself right from wrong, man falls. He becomes separated from God and he's no longer restrained in the expression of his freedom by an obligation to God or his virtues. Instead, and you know the story, since man chose not to be obligated to God through a free will choice, his freedom 
then guess what God gives them? You guessed it. Laws. They were now obligated to the law and not to God or to virtue. It was the law to which they were beholden and the law which they thought could justify them. And laws did then what laws do now. First, there was ten. You're familiar with the commandments. And before you knew it, there were 613 rabbinical laws. Add on to that the oral laws. Add on to that all of the, the rabbinic traditions. Because this is what laws do. Or there's anarchy. Laws grow. Freedoms diminish. And it was into this same system that Jesus is born and he makes bold declarations about the law. You hear it in the sermon that you've heard called the Sermon on the Mount. First he says, don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but I've come to fulfill them. But then he starts pointing out something about the law, which was true then, and it's true today. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I'm telling you, then anybody who's angry with a brother or sister is subject to judgment. Again, you've heard it said, because this was the law, you shall not commit adultery. But I'm telling you, anybody who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, here's the thing about the law. The law doesn't change anybody. The law doesn't move a heart. You could still hate at least they thought, and fulfill the law. You could still lust, at least they thought, and fulfill the law. The law doesn't have the power to change anybody or anything. The law's never changed a heart. At best, it simply represses our ability to use our freedom to leverage our own power and outcomes. And so that's why we have to keep coming up with new laws to protect ourselves from one another. This is why we have more laws now than we can count but yet we hate each other more than ever before. Laws can regulate our behaviors, but they can't change our hearts. Jesus shows them and us that God is a God who looks at the heart, and thus even the best of us are in trouble. We're all violators of those laws, at least the heart ones, and subject to the penalty. Yet, yet, it's the same Jesus who intercedes on our half by fulfilling the law perfectly, living a life without sin or blemish, and then dies the pay to price for our sins, he fulfills the law on our behalf. Paul explains it this way. He said, therefore, because of what Christ has done, there is no condemnation for those of us that are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Listen to this now. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of a sinful flesh to be a sin offering. Paul's trying to explain the law isn't helping you. The law is not changing you. If anything, it's only convicting you. And then he says something crazy. To all of those who would believe and have Jesus' death pay the penalty due them under this system of the law. He says, through faith, now listen to me on 4th of July, you're free. 
You have no obligation anymore under this law. I've set you free. Which sounds pretty dangerous given our relationship to freedom and our tendencies to use it for our own devices. Man, this was crazy controversial in the first century. It still is. In fact, most of the letters that Paul writes to these early churches, they're all about this topic. Free from the law, like totally free. They can do whatever they want. That's crazy. At least that's what the first century religious leaders thought. It's too dangerous. We have to have some laws. We have to have some restrictions. This was the debate that was going on in the church in the city of Galatia. The Galatians, who were Gentiles who had come to faith in Jesus, had been confused by teaching that was going back and forth. Paul had told them they were free from all of the Old Testament laws. The dietary laws, most importantly for the guys in Galatia, the laws about circumcision. And so in attempting to explain to them again how free they really were, Paul makes a statement that when I read it this week, guys, I, it was haunting. I just, I, I keep reading it. it, it it's like Paul somehow got a glimpse as to what would be happening in our streets, in our supermarkets, in our offices, and on our Facebook pages in 2020. Paul actually tells us how to solve it. Literally what Paul says here, I've read it so many times this week, and every time it just gives me goosebumps. And he gives us, especially those of us that would call ourselves followers of Jesus, he tells us how we are to respond in a moment of time just like today. And that if we would, if just those of us that say we're following Jesus, if we would do that, we could reclaim the promise of freedom. Check this out. He says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. See, Paul knows us. He's seen it all before. He knows based on his experience. He knows based on biblical accounts. Paul knows what freedom can do, what freedom brings about naturally. When we are free, we tend to use it to indulge what he calls the flesh. He actually defines that for us. He says the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Hmm. Any of that sound familiar? Paul says, guys, you're called to be free. And so be free. You're completely free. You're not under the law. But don't use your freedom like a kid set free first semester at college. Don't do that. You do that, and the next thing you know, we're going to be at each other again. You do that, and the next thing you know, you're going to be enslaved to laws getting set up again and again and again. Rather, he says, rather serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. This, it turns out, is the only law freedom requires. 
It's the only law that freedom needs to prosper. This is the command of Jesus, the new command that he said he was giving us. Church, this is the way back. This is the path home for us as a people. This really would make America great again. I mean, imagine a country where we, we all had individual rights, but we weren't all demanding to exercise our individual freedoms because we know it might infringe on another. Imagine if I, if I thought, I know I have the right to free speech, but that doesn't mean I have to say everything I want to say. Imagine a country where, where we didn't have to demand to be heard, demand our full share, demand I have each and every right I'm entitled to, and then leverage every freedom and every right for my good. Paul says, look, don't do that. You use your freedom to serve other people. And then here comes, here comes this warning that sends chills down my spine. Paul says, if you keep doing this, if you keep using your freedom for your own individual benefit, if you keep using your freedom to get everything you want, if you keep using your freedom to serve yourself, if you keep demanding your rights, even when they might infringe on another's rights, well, here it is. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. If you bite and devour each other, if you keep using your freedom for you and not others, well, then I can tell you what's going to happen. And he warns us, just like the founding fathers did, you're going to destroy each other. America, you're going to destroy yourself. You're not going to need to worry about China or Russia or North Korea. They are not the biggest threat to our future. We are. And so guys, we have to stop. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning and you're listening in because your mama made you breakfast or your girlfriend told you to join online, I get that and you might think that that sounds, that teaching of Jesus and Paul sounds kind of crazy. Although you have to admit that Paul seemed to put his finger on something 2,000 years ago that we're watching play out on our social media feeds today. But if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, then the change in this country, this 4th of July, the change this country needs, the only thing that will keep us from a path of anarchy or tyranny is one thing. And I'm telling you this with all of the authority of Scripture behind it that at least I can bring. You stop using your freedom for you and you start leveraging it for others. There are still 65% of citizens in this country who say they are followers of Jesus. Imagine if we all started acting like it. If we started living out the one commandment that Jesus left us with. What does that look like practically for you this 4th of July weekend? Well, I'll give you two things. The first is this. When it comes to your freedom, you need to walk in the Spirit and be obligated to the Spirit. Realize what Jesus and Paul were saying. Stop taking your cues from the law. Paul would go on to say, you have a new obligation. In fact, we're given a chance to go back to the original obligation we had in the garden where there were no laws needed. He continues on to the Galatians and says, So I say, walk by the Spirit, 
and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The flesh desires what's contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what's contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you're led by the spirit, you are not under the law. In fact, he goes on to tell the church in Rome, therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it. We have a new obligation, Paul would write them. It's not to the law. It's not to the flesh. It's to the Spirit of God. We are no longer obligated to the law, but to the Spirit. Christians, we don't take our cues. Friends, listen to me. We don't take our cues from the law, making sure that we're getting everything that we're entitled to. We don't use our freedom for ourselves we don't see the law as the boundaries of what we can do and get away with. We walk by the Spirit. Just because the law says that we can do something doesn't mean we should do something. We don't ask if it's legal. We ask if it would benefit others. I want you to hear this. The question is not, do I have the right? The question is, is it right? The question is not, do I have the right? The question is, is it right? Here's the second thing. John Adams famously said, our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to, to the government of any other. Followers of Jesus, we have to be that moral people. That's our obligation to the Spirit. But it's also our choice. Let's stop worrying about how everyone out there is living. When we do that, it does two things to us. First, we start to live at cultural standards and, and, and not in step with the Spirit. We begin to live under the law again, but not God's man's. If it's legal, well, then I guess we should do it. No, we're obligated to the Spirit, not to the law. We should be leading the way when it comes to not satisfying the desires of the flesh. But unfortunately for too long, we thought it was our job to make others moral. Relevant Magazine had a fascinating piece this week entitled, check it out online, It's Time to Kill Our Cultural War Mentality. Remember the culture wars we've been fighting for the last 30, 40 years? In the, the, in the article, the writer asserted that given we now live in a pluralistic society, we're going to need to rethink our language. Jesus told us the only principle that governs our affairs with others is love. We're to love our neighbors as ourselves. He never mentioned waging war with them. See, if the stakes are perceived to be sufficiently high in a war, it becomes so easy to justify dehumanizing rhetoric, dirty political tricks, and outraged social media chatter. That culture war language gives us permission to adapt the anything-goes tactics of warfare. We see others not as people to be persuaded or known, but enemies to be disgraced, dismissed, and defeated. In a war, you don't listen to others. You don't, you don't have to serve them. You certainly aren't going to take the time to get to know them or their kids or buy things from their businesses or stand in solidarity with them against injustice. Instead, because it's a war, you have to bludgeon them into submission with votes and memes and canceling and boycotting and, yes, sometimes even ostr ostracizing. When it comes 
to the works of the flesh. Church, when it comes to sex, money, hatred, anger, jealousy, discord, we have a new obligation, and it's not to the law. It's not to do what we can get away with, but it's to the Spirit which gives you the power to overcome the desires of your flesh. We, we need to morally lead and not lecture. We need to practice more and maybe preach a little bit less. Church, let's not use our freedom to indulge our flesh or to demand our rights and everything we're justly due, but instead to love our neighbor as ourselves. Because in many ways, our war is not with them. It never was. It's not out there. Our war, it's in here. I'm going to end with this one final warning. A quote from John Adams. Andy Stanley highlighted it in this same regard. It was in a letter that he wrote prior to his death. Here's what he said. Posterity, he began. That's the generations that would come after him. That's those of us. That's you. He says to you, you'll never know how much it costs the present generation to preserve your freedom. And I mean, that's true, right? Especially for so many of us in this generation where so few of us have had to make the sacrifices that so many before us made to preserve our freedom. He goes on, he goes, I hope that you will make good use of it. If you do not, I shall repent in heaven that I ever took half the pains to preserve it. Jesus, freedom, and the 4th of July. I hope you enjoy your weekend, your hot dogs, your hamburgers. But when you get back at it on Monday, remember, Paul warned us, so did the founding fathers, we were made to be free. But let's not use our freedom to indulge the flesh. It's time to stop devouring one another, and it absolutely has to start with us. It's a republic. Franklin said, if you can keep it. There is only one thing separating us from anarchy on the left and tyranny on the right. And this 4th of July, it's the same thing that it was on that first 4th of July. It's God's good, virtuous, and moral people choosing to use their freedom to serve one another humbly, in love. And it's not too late. It's our turn to take the pains to preserve it. Happy 4th, Mendham. I'll see you back here next week.